Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Dan Rebellato, who joins me to discuss Philip Norman's 1981 Beatle biography, Shout. Dan is a dramatist and academic, and as you'll be able to tell from our conversation, an intelligent, witty and perceptive Beatles obsessive. Shout is one of the most famous of all Beatle books. I dare say it's on most of your Beatle bookshelves, even if it's not a book that you pick up much these days. Dan and I look at the impact this huge selling book had on the perception of the Beatles, and particularly Paul, through the 80s and the 90s. And we try to assess why this book was such a hit, and whether it's still got a place today. Dan Rebellato, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm good, Joe. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Uh, We're here ostensibly to talk about maybe one of the most notorious, infamous books in Beatle literature, uh, which is Philip Norman's Shout, although I'm sure our discussion will uh, skirt away from that. Let's start back in the an obvious place. When did you first encounter uh, and read Shout? So I've been trying to figure this out, and I think it must have been early in 1983. So uh, it, it's the first Beatle book I ever read, uh, which is kind of why I wanted to to talk about it. Uh, and 1983 is when I got into the Beatles. That it was a it was a time when the Beatles were having a sort of little revival because there was, if you remember, there was the 20th anniversary single re-release campaign and uh, that kicked off with a 20 greatest hits a very peculiar album which didn't actually have their 20 greatest hits on um and that was the first Beatles album I got and then I th- my memory is that every month I kind of save up my pocket money and get another Beatles album so over the course of about a year and a half finishing off with I think Beatles Live at the Hollywood Bowl I kind of by the end of that I had every single Beatles album and Shout was the first book that I read and so that would have been somewhere around late winter early spring 1983. Do you remember there'd been a lot of other options for, for Beatles books at that time was there a particular reason that you chose this one as your first Beatles book? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there were there was always a lot of stuff about the Beatles around. Um, but in terms of a sort of big, fat, possibly reliable biography, this seemed to be the best one. Or, or Because it actually, it only recently come out. I think it came out in paperback in 82. Mm. So it was still probably you know i bet it did quite well at christmas so there were lots of them in the shops so it was probably the most prominent of them but there were you know there were books you know there were sort of guys to the individual albums and lyric books and and quite glossy things but no this was the one because i felt when i was getting accustomed to the to the records um and still being very slightly startled by the Beatles actually because one the thing I always remember every time I'd get an album and I'd put it on and I'd keep going oh this is also by the Beatles this song I know really well yeah and yeah. that happened right the way through I would just keep going I can't believe all these songs that I just that are just in the air are the Beatles and I th- I think it was that thing of going it's so strange to me that Love Me Do and Help and Strawberry Fields and 
Let It Be and You Know My Name, Look Up The Number are all by the same band. That I think it drew me to want to read a biography because I wanted a sense of what on earth is the story that produces that variety of music. Personally, I seem to remember... So I'm... I came to it in 1995. It was by then. It was sort of a standard, really. I mean, even though it had only been out for those kind of whatever it was, thirteen or fourteen years. Um, obviously, the other kind of option that you had was the Hunter Davis book. I seem to remember. So my dad gave me his copy of the Hunter Davis authorized biography, which he bought in the late sixties. This just seemed so, it, it, even though even by that point, there were lots of other Beatles books, obviously, that were available. Even mm. in the mid-90s, it seemed to be sort of the definitive story still. What do you put, well, first of all, what do you remember about your kind of feeling about the book when you first read it? Was it something that you were c- completely gripped with or was it a struggle to kind of get through? No, it's, it's really interesting going back to it now because mm. i think probably the last time i read it i i'm sure i read it two or three times in the 80s but it would have been mid 80s be last time i read it so going back 35 years later it's really interesting that because my memory is that i zipped through it and now i and when i got my second hand copy through the post i went wow this is massive this book uh, and it really is it's a huge book I mean, I'm going to guess this is like 160, 170,000 words. Mm-hmm. So actually, I think one of the things that is, is actually really good about the book is that it really zips through. It's a very exciting read. It, it, he's, he tells the story in a constantly engaging way with lots of great details and kind of funny little anecdotal moments that illustrate really interesting things about it. So my memory is that I zipped through it and i think that's actually important 90 percent of why i like the beatles is the music but i do think 10 percent of it is i think their story is completely extraordinary uh, and as an artistic journey i think there are very few artistic journeys to equal it there's something to me wholly admirable about having that level of global fame and choosing to do something that is about taking your audience on a journey that enriches and gets more complicated and more challenging, but somehow managing to bring everyone with them the whole way through. I I mean, you know, I find that an extraordinarily inspiring story. Uh, The other thing as well, uh, when I reread it just, you know, over the last month Mm -hmm. is I realized there are so many sort of iconic moments that have just stuck in my head for for 35 years or more in the Beatles story and of course I obviously they came from here you know and I I, it was reading them that I kind of thought oh yeah of course this thing that I you know uh, Paul McCartney playing Blackbird on his balcony to the kind of apple scruffs outside his house George Martin saying gentlemen you've just made your first number one Brian Epstein crying as the curtain goes up on uh, on one of the cinema tours watching the Beatles a pair of Japanese slippers on a landing these things are kind of they've stayed in my head and in my heart in a way because I think they're the reason why those things are so great and they stick there is they are, they're really great emotional stories. 
you know, another one is the Beatles in the Paris hotel room. I think he describes them sitting like kittens around Brian Epstein's feet, dumbstruck because they're number one in America. And each of those moments, I think he does beautifully describe the emotion of going on that absolutely unprecedented journey. So it clearly went in, you know, it really went in that book. Uh, and a lot of it is still very much part of what I, what I think of the Beatles story as being. It's amazing because I spoke to on a, a previous podcast, um, Andy Miller about the Hunter Davis book um, that I, I know you listened to. And I got a really similar feeling from rereading Shout that I got from re, sort of from rereading Hunter's book in that in Hunter's book, all these names of the of people that no one knew about in 1968, be it you know, Pete Shotton or, or, or someone that, you know, Rex making all these little kind of Beatle characters that now we take for granted. Hunter found all those people. And the exact same thing for this book is that you're right. Those little vignettes of things that pop up in magazine articles from the nineties or, do you know what I mean? Just, just things that you kind of take as read now, they all came from here. And I think a lot of the reason why they, they stay with us is because of the way that they were written about. What I got from it, from from rereading it in in preparation for this, was just the, I think the energy of it is remarkable. The, like you say, it, it it's a huge book, really, and it, it completely zips along. Obviously, in so I last read it in, yeah, I probably read it again when I, I had a bizarre thing when I started university in 2002. I took about five Beatles books with me and just read them before bed to, to kind of, because I, ho- I was quite homesick. So I, right. uh, the Beatles were quite a familiar uh, presence for 18-year-old Joe. So I think that's the last time that I read Shout properly prior to, to, to doing this. And of course, since then, the nature of doing this means I've read an awful lot of other Beatles books. I'm sure we'll, we'll come to the the kind of what this book represents but the the energy and the, the power of the of the descriptions I thought was just it was fantastic I thought it was so well written it, I agree and uh, you know actually the you know we will we will talk about the limitations of the book later but but actually there are sort of wonderful moments where there are really dense paragraphs where you know when, when, and by dense what i mean is i know i can tell by reading it that there are probably 12 sources that he's braided together but to tell this very rich dazzling story that you know with just loads of facts and information like when he's talking about the beatles merchandise for example there's some really just lovely detailed that as you say it just gives you such a strong sense of the of the kind of ludicrous unprecedented abundance of what Beatlemania was when it really hit particularly in America I also think one thing he's very good at I think the early chapters are really really good actually something I've I've really thought about was the way that they loved this music, but they had so little access to it. And there's, you know, there's a description, isn't there? I think of them seeing a concert by somebody and they're frantically scribbling down the lyrics for Dizzy Miss Lizzie because 
this is the only time they get a chance to actually, you know, figure this stuff out. And, you know, it's not in this book, but, you know, Paul tells that story about, you know, that they'd hear a rumour that somebody knows how to play E7, so they will get on the bus and do it. But actually that sense of that if you are working class Liverpudlian in the mid-1950s, you are kind of pioneering with this music because you're making your own choices. I mean, one of the things that is so extraordinary about them actually is, is how weirdly eclectic their musical taste was uh, uh, at the beginning. And they're just hunting stuff out and approximating stuff and they, they get lyrics wrong, which I think even work their way into the recorded cover versions. But that's kind of exciting there's something really exciting about the thought that these people are just kind of making their own musical canon. And I think he captures that very well. I agree. I just wanted to read, talking about the thrill of it, there's a paragraph that I, that I picked out and he's talking about maybe the most exciting, for me actually, the most exciting part of the whole story is the first American visit. I love it. I, I kind of love the idea that maybe as British people, we will never quite grasp what that meant. I think there's, there's all sorts of things that like, I was talking about this on a, another podcast where Americans don't quite grasp what it was like in the UK in 63 to be a Beatles fan. It was, there's just something about yeah. they don't quite get and we'll never quite get what it was like that Sunday night to watch, to watch Ed Sullivan. But it, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated with it. I mean, this is, this is just a, a, a short paragraph. So, It was a moment when the potential existed for a madness which nothing indigenously American could unleash. It was a moment when all America's deep envy of Europe and the eccentricity permitted to older American eyes placed them somewhere near Shakespeare's Hamlet. It was a moment simultaneously gratifying America's need for a new idol, a new toy, a pain-killing drug and a laugh. That's yeah. That's really good, isn't How, it? That I mean, that captures that that moment. You know, we we've all watched that footage of them getting off the plane and going into the that that amazing press conference, and you really sort of understand by reading this. You know, the sense of the magic of it all, really. Yeah, and and let me read a a bit, which is very different, actually, and and that and that's interesting because it shows there are quite different tones here. But I think what I like about this section is that it's a very good example of that thing I was saying about braiding different types of research together, because it's him describing the Walton village fate. And what you realise, or at least I'm, I'm guessing anyway, is that he's looked at newspapers at the time, he's got reminiscences, and he's been there. And he puts those all together. So if you listen to this, he says... It was a warm, sunny Saturday garden fate afternoon. Liverpool, its ships, t- ship towers and grime, seemed remote from the village, decked in faded flags, and the little red sandstone church up the hill in whose square tower the gold block hand seemed to point to perpetual summer. Beside the churchyard, a rough track led into the two small parish-owned fields. Of these, the smaller one, on upland near the Boy Scouts' hut, was too uneven for anything but the refreshment marquee. On the lower, larger field were set out stalls purveying handkerchiefs, hardware, homemade cakes, fruit and vegetables, and sideshows including bagatelle, egg hoopla, quoits, and shilling in the bucket. 
Beyond the Scout's airborne kiddie ride, a blackened stone wall formed the boundary with another of Orton's worked out quarries. A constant patrol of stewards was necessary to ensure that no child climbed over and fell into the deep overgrown pit. And what I love about that is actually it's really vivid. It, you really, he, he traces that out for you because of course it is one of the most hallowed grounds in the Beatles story that moment. But I think that narrative way he walks you through the space and he just gives you a, a, a very clear sense of its simple physicality as a, as, as a space just prepares the way for the extraordinary moment, the meeting and so on in a way that is really, really deft and very elegantly done. It's really English, that, isn't it, as well? That description, that's yes. such an English summer's day, you know, which exactly. is uh, perfectly, perfectly captured there. Okay, so obviously we will also look at the kind of the limitations of, of this book, of which there are, there are some. Now it's kind of taken as read that, oh, it's an anti-Paul kind of diatribe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when you read it at the time, do you remember getting the sense of that? And do you remember in the 80s, around that, that period, that, oh, shout, it's a good book, but there's a lot about Paul in it that's not very nice? Uh, yes, absolutely. I was very aware that he really disliked Paul McCartney. I felt very conflicted about that because I really liked Paul McCartney and liked Paul McCartney then, but was very aware that some of the claims that he makes in the book, which are, I mean, they're, they're, they're kind of two things, aren't they? I mean, basically, as a person, he thinks Paul McCartney is insincere, two-faced, charms his way out of any situation. And musically, he's terribly sentimental and nowhere near as good as John Lennon. And I suppose, obviously, I didn't know anything about whether he's insincere, but, uh, but of course, when people mocked the frog chorus when that came out, that felt like that somehow confirmed this story. And then, you know, when I was sort of getting into his slow stuff, you know, at the time, I would hear something like, uh, my love, and go, oh, yes, that's an example of syrupy Paul that Philip Norman talked about. And but the thing for now, of course, I, I kind of think it's, it's not syrupy at all. It's a completely beautiful song. But it sort of did feel like it created a narrative, which I, I would say for me made me feel like I sort of picked the wrong beetle. <laughs> uh, which, uh, which is, uh, of course, is also part of that kind of silly zero-sum game where, you know, you can't like one beetle without denigrating another beetle that he absolutely buys into, I think. But certainly it, it gave me for a long time a feeling that... John Lennon was clearly the, the really exciting Beatle to like. And Paul McCartney is sort of the one if you've got kind of middle brow tastes. So, yeah, I felt that really at the time. And it kind of gave me, gave me a terrible feeling of guilt for liking Paul. It's interesting because, of course, it comes out in 81, back in 82. And then Paul's solo work after Tug of War, things like Pipes of Peace, Press, Broad Street even, uh, it's not any of those could be considered career highlights, even though, you know, I, I'm probably biased, but I think there's a lot of good stuff on, on those albums. But yeah, his critical, maybe even commercial point was, was pretty low then. I wonder if maybe we're 
over-egging it a bit, but I wonder whether or not the narrative that's in this book that was humongously, as you remember, successful all through the 80s, in lots of different versions of it were issued in the 80s. I wonder whether or not alongside all the other factors like, you know, John being killed, etc., and the lionising of John a little bit, but I wonder whether or not the influence of this book even stretched to people listening to a Paul album that came out after and go, as you say, ah, oh, well, obviously this is not a, this is just him rehashing old, old stuff. I think it's, I mean, I don't know whether this would necessarily, this couldn't have done it on its own. Okay. I do, uh, I think the the clear thing is Lennon's murder, which of course inevitably is going to make you, just value him because he's taken so early and all those sorts of things. And then the Paul had the temerity to carry on recording. Um, and of course was really, really successful and had been successful all the way through the seventies in a way that John sort of hadn't been, which, which if you're very lazy means that John had sort of integrity, whereas Paul had sold out in some way. And so I think probably what the role of this book did was perhaps to just kind of articulate that inchoate feeling that there was something insubstantial about Paul, whereas sort of St. John had been, you know, had been the person who should have survived in some, in some way. And it clearly took Paul a long, long time for his reputation to start turning from that so yeah there was certainly in the 80s I, th- I feel like he was a Paul sometimes was a bit of a joke I mean if you, if you look at I mean I, I, I spoke to um Jen Roberts who's written a really good book called Fab Fools about the Beatles and comedy one of the chapters in that book is, is about the 80s and he runs through you know things like spitting image you know the image of Paul on on, on things like that and just and jokes on and stand-up routines and, and all that kind of stuff it, it's, it's fascinating that I mean I think a lot of them did get that a lot of that kind of generation of a rock star did get a lot of a, maybe not abuse but they were certainly ribbed you know there yeah. was that that cover of Q magazine were from 89 with the stones on the front and, and it said uh lock up your grandmother or something the stones are back and they're all yeah yeah. and they're they're all in like in like in the the mid 40s and stuff so i think he was part of that because of course no one quite knew what to do with these rock stars because they no one had got old in rock and roll before but it is fascinating that that the image of him in the 80s was so so negative yeah i i think that's absolutely that's absolutely right and that generation generally had a bad (laughs) had <laughs> bad 80s didn't they i mean you know think of bob dylan that's the 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 80s are the least good point in his catalog and i think actually it kind of affects them as well because they're kind of thinking well i'm not a young man anymore but i'm thought of as being this kind of voice of a generation young person so what the hell am i doing now i mean it's important as well to remember that when double fantasy came out it got some terrible reviews and it's only after he was killed that people sort of thought all these songs were were great as i as in fact i think they are great but you know there was this sense that i oh, sold out it's a sort of you know he's this soppy he's turned into this middle of the road artist so yeah yeah it's a very difficult time the other thing though i think about this book which is very interesting and obviously i don't know 
the true story about all of this stuff. We've only got kind of competing versions of this narrative. But one of the things that there are ways in which uh, attributes of John and Paul that I think are accurate are swapped onto each other. So I came away from this book completely convinced that Paul McCartney had had a kind of middle-class upbringing and John Lennon had had a kind of hard, tough, working-class upbringing because that is absolutely how he describes it in the book. And even at one point, he more or less says he's a kind of working-class northern man, John, that is. Um, Whereas, of course, now we know it's the other way around. Paul McCartney's the (laughs) working-class kid and John Lennon has a much more middle-class life. There's another point in the mid-60s where he, he basically says that John Lennon is kind of immersed in the kind of alternative art world and he's constantly going to galleries and avant-garde events, whereas they say Paul McCartney is to be found in Belgravia cocktail parties and West End first nights, which is, a, which is again, it's trying to create this sense that you have the middle-of-the-road entertainer, Paul McCartney, and you have the avant-garde artist, John Lennon. Now, I know Barry Miles' book is very Paul's view of the world or the view of of him that he wants to promote. But actually, what was so shocking to me when I read that was go, oh, it's actually Paul who lives in London, not because he wants to social climb to the ashes, as Philip Norman seems to think, but actually because he wants, he's always going to you know, see avant-garde music events and, and happenings and all this sort of stuff. So again, it's sort of really interesting to see the way that actually there is a con- deliberate construction of safe middle-of-the-road pool, middle-class middle-of-the-road pool, and edgy avant-garde working-class Lennon in this book. What did you get from rereading it uh, in preparation for this about Norman's kind of view of the music I thought what was really interesting for me was, uh, I mean, we get all these different, and I'll, I'm going to read another little bit out now, if, if if that's okay. Just thinking about how views of songs change in the 40-odd years since this was published. It's amazing how you kind of get used to, oh, that's a really good Beatles song, and that's not a good Beatles song. So this is just something that I wanted to uh, to read. And this is talking about, uh, this is the August 67 chapter where he, he, he's talking about Sergeant Pepper. Paul, so thoughtful and considerate on that occasion, could be just as suddenly imperious and petulant. Possibly he knew that John's Sergeant Pepper music was destined to outshine his. Against Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and A Day in the Life, Paul's chief offering was She's Leaving Home, a song as straightforward as John's were elusive a miniaturised novel about a girl abandoning her parents to go to London and meet a man from the motor trade. As usual, Paul's head arrangement required George Martin to convert it into a formal orchestral score. Martin, however, could not attend, as Paul wanted at 24 hours' notice. He therefore found himself summarily dropped in favour of an outside arranger. Now, the interesting thing about that for me is, first of all, the way that it completely dismisses she's leaving home which i mean that's for me i don't know about you but for me what a magnificent piece of music <clears throat> she's leaving home is and I, I always remember it being thought of in that way i don't remember it being uh, it, it, it being kind of talked down like like he does here and also 
this idea that he's managed to squeeze in a sentence about Paul being petulant and uh, you know annoyed because George Martin couldn't produce uh, or couldn't prepare the the score for for she leaving home and it's just re- referred to as an outsider ranger whereas we know now that it was Mike Leander quite you know yeah. a really well known known figure but I think that's a fascinating paragraph of just how the views of of, of songs change over the course of you know 20 30 40 years absolutely and uh because it's also that he sort of says basically she's leaving home is paul's contribution to that record and it, interesting he ascribes a day in the life to john rather than it of course the 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 glory of that song is the co-write isn't it you know it's the different shifts of it and the arrangement that paul was totally part of uh, and of course he he just he doesn't even mention with a little help from my friends or you know getting better or fixing a hole or lovely rita you know paul is massive on, on sergeant pepper and it seems very strange they i mean i think the point you make about uh, how certain songs you know, rise and fall over history. Because actually my sort of sense from reading stuff now is is people are slightly less impressed by Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds than they used to be, which yeah. whereas he's holding that up as the one of the pinnacles of that. There's another great example. Uh, actually, a couple of examples. This, I, my jaw dropped open. He describes Can't Buy Me Love as perhaps the least memorable of all Lennon and McCartney's songs. Can't buy me love? What? And then he talks about Rain and Paperback Writer and says, a suspicion formed, even if no one yet dared to articulate it, that the Beatles were not infallible. So Rain, Rain, (laughs) Rain, which is, which of course, again, I think in the 90s, through Britpop and stuff like that, came to be seen as one of the, the great, great moments of the Beatles, but paperback writer as well. He thinks, ah, chink in the armor, that's where it all starts to go wrong, which is very strange. He describes Eleanor Rigby as sentimental, uh, for no one is pretty and self pitying. Wow. <laughs> and it's, you know, Love You Too is burdened with Indian sitars. I don't know quite what he means by that i mean it's not a song without them so but yeah so yeah there are i in terms of the music the thing i find so strange about this and actually this is very similar to the hunter davis is he's really doesn't talk about the music much at all i mean there are albums go past with just a sort of you know just kind of it was a a collection of original lennon mccartney numbers and a few covers from their cavern days and, you know, you think that's, is that really how you're going to describe Beatles for Sale? You know, that's all you can say about it. Yeah, he's, and I also would say, I think, I think what he's very good at, he's very good at telling the story. I think he's very good actually at describing kind of the sort of office atmosphere where different personalities are, are struggling to keep something together. So I think he's quite good at talking about how NEMS works and doesn't work and, and that sort of thing, even if we don't necessarily agree with his characterization of those people. That's very good. He is terrible at talking about the music. He just, he has no feel for music at all, I would say. I mean, I don't, there's no, there's not a moment where I thought, oh, that's a very nice, evocative way of doing it. 
I'm not expecting revolution in the head, but I do. I did read it thinking this. This is, seems to be someone who doesn't actually particularly like the Beatles' music, which is odd. Certainly, for a man that's written a book and and several other books about the Beatles since since then, I wonder. Actually, you mentioned revolution in the head there. I wonder if part of the the popularity of that book was because, and you might be a better place than me to answer this, is there was so little discussion of the music in other Beatles books previous to that. I mean, I mean if, if this and Hunter's book are the two kind of bookends of, of Beatles literature up, up until the mid-90s, I wonder whether or not Revolution in the Head success was partly down because people were looking for that, that information, that kind of discussion. Yes, uh, yes, and I think I do think that's that's probably right. Or else the discussion of the music was either uncritically fanish, you know, that everything was sort of incredible, or else it's Aeolian cadences, you know, it's sort of highly musicological. And I think what's what is so we're not talking about Revolution Ahead, but what is so brilliant and why that is still possibly my favourite Beatles book is that actually that weaves together some musicology but some very comprehensible accessible insightful musical thoughts with loads and loads of genuine cultural history again that's another thing i found strange when i read this book because it it has the reputation i think i sort of remember it as being uh, a book that places the the beatles in their time and so i sort of i my memory was that it was sort of really showing them as uh, as how they were kind of braided into their era but i was very surprised at how to be blunt how badly he does that because when he talks about 1956 it's basically teenagers suez teddy boys coffee bars rock and roll you go anybody could do that you know a sort of a child could uh, characterize an era like that 1963 is profumo and you know the great train robbery and christine keeler and uh, you go actually it's it's a level of very superficial cliche and it's it's not fair of course to compare this with with mark lewison of course but you know you get the sense of where mark lewison is interested in what liverpool was like when they were growing up he has kind of looked at a hundred years of economic history and discussed the urban geography and you know there's a really profound sense of that he's done that work whereas here it's you know his characterization of liverpool is the mersey the liver building fog the docks you know <laughs> and it just doesn't it i just go i you haven't really done the thinking about it it's just you're just coloring in mark lewiston who of course appears at the end of the book That's right, I, I, i'd completely forgotten that uh i think actually the the epilogue is really well written piece um but yeah there's mark lewiston a a 22 year old in pinner uh researching (laughs) i mean just you could have no idea obviously of the impact of 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 mark lewiston going forward one thing about the book actually that has just come to me while we were talking here is its view of george and ringo is so limited i mean it's it's such a something that I got from it when I reread it. Um, there were, and I mean, this actually is common of several other Beatle authors that, that we haven't got time to go through now. But the marginalisation of George and Ringo 
which you don't get as much in Hunter's book. You know, Hunter does spend time with all of them, even if I don't think all four were as keen on doing the, the, the book as, as it Paul wasn't necessarily. But yeah, George and Ringo, I, mean, I can't think of a huge amount that they do in this book. Uh, no, uh, because I obviously I remember it as being very anti-Paul. That was one of the things that surprised me when I reread it, that he has very he has no respect or very little respect for george i mean george is barely in the book i mean he's barely in it which is extraordinary for a book about the the beatles uh ringo is in it about the same amount and he has nothing nothing to say about ringo i mean it you know he's a good drummer is basically all you get from this uh and in fact george george doesn't even isn't even a good guitarist apparently there's a, a line i picked out he says he played lead guitar as he always had earnestly a little ponderously george harrison man that's a that's a bit miserable isn't it and he also um he says quite a few times that george was it, george's character is completely miserable from you notice the moment he's born <laughs> <laughs> even newborn baby George is glaring balefully at the world. Um, but he also says that, you know, uh, George in the Beatles is, is sort of very negative because, uh, because he only gets one song per album. He keeps saying that. And you go, you know, that isn't true. He says that right in the middle of having, no, he's just discussed, I think, Rubber Soul and Revolver on which, George has, I think, two and three songs. There's a very sort of he's got a he's got a particular view, and he just hammers away at it. And sometimes, regardless of what the kind of facts are, in fact, there's a, another thing I think is uh, strange in the book that I found quite off-putting, which I didn't I don't think I particularly noticed at the time. But one is the I mean the the structure of this version is uh, it falls into four sections. I think you're, the later one is five, but this is wishing, getting, having, and wasting. And you can hear in that there's a kind of up and down the mountain structure because the whole story heads towards Sergeant Pepper. And then after Sergeant Pepper, it's all downhill from there. Why I love the Mark Lewison book, and, I, and by that I mean the, the expanded the, the full expanded edition, which is the most thrilling thing ever, is it's so glacially slow in the way it takes the story is that you don't feel like anything is preordained, that actually people are just making decisions and stumbling forward. And as I, you know, we are in terms of Beatles biography, this is Mark Lewison's world and we just live in it. But what this book does, I think in a slightly irritating way is it means the structure the sort of literary structure of the first half is all foreshadowing everything is just pointing towards what they're going to be like so all the beetle babies are, are, are replicate their adult personas as he understands them and you know he it also means that you know he constantly says things like brian Epstein didn't realise what he had when he signed the Beatles. And, and of course, the Decker audition. This always bugs me when people talk about the Decker audition. You know, there's always that sort of, you know, ah, oh, the fools, imagine not signing the Beatles. But I've heard the Decker audition. You know, people kind of go, 
the Sheikh of Araby guys, that we gotta sign them. I can tell that anyone who can sing three cool cats like that are gonna produce Penny Lane Strawberry Fields in five years' time. Do you know what I mean? It I don't I'm not surprised they didn't sign the Beatles at all from that. But because his structure is it's all inevitably heading towards Sergeant Pepper, people get even George Martin is described as not really understanding what they were doing in Sergeant Pepper, which I don't I don't believe for a second. I'm sure George Martin knew exactly what they're doing and how brilliant it was. And then, of course, what that means on the other side of the mountain, everything is a disaster. You know, he has nothing good to say about Magical Mystery Tour. The White Album is a disorganized mess. Uh, let it be, you know, he he absolutely promotes that vision of the Twickenham Sessions as a, as a complete career-ending disaster and so on. You know, so it's, uh, and I think, unfortunately, that's where I feel like the book has has that sort of, he's got a narrative structure and he's sticking to it, regardless of what the facts are actually going to tell him. One thing that, um, just talking about the other versions of the book, I'd love to know it. If this this author's note, which is at the beginning of my version, I've got the original 1981 hardback, from what I can I can gather, published by MJF Books, whoever they are. But this 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 author's note, this is the very first thing that the reader would come across when they bought this book. Okay, I would like to acknowledge the invaluable help given to me during the preparation of this book by the four ex Beatles. John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. Unfortunately, I cannot do so. I mean, if you talk about setting the tone for a book straight away, he's yes. immediately he's angry that they have they haven't helped with with writing in this book. I, I, I don't know if that author's note survives into the other versions. It um, does, but what interestingly, in the paperback version that I've got, we're getting into massive nerd bibliography here, which is that's great. What, that's what we're here for. I've, very much the wheelhouse of this podcast. Uh, he's put it at the end. It's at the very end of the book because I'm, I'm sure he must have realised that that is an extraordinarily sort of just misanthropic way of starting a book about the Beatles to sort of grouch about the fact that these people don't deal with you. Uh, so, so, yeah, I, I think that is interesting. I mean, the subsequent... It is very strange. His politics are kind of strange. There are hints in this 1982 version that he's, he's very down on the 60s. He's, he really doesn't think the 60s are up to much, that the, the swinging 60s are a sort of hallucination. And he describes it sort of feather-brained indulgence and stuff like that. That is expanded very much in the early 2000s in this another version that that i looked at where he starts going on and on about how the 60s has basically led to a world of disrespect and hooliganism and and so on there's something kind of odd and contradictory actually in this moment that it's published because i can't help reading that as being part of a sort of thatcherite moment where there's a turning against the 60s and sort of liberalism in favour of kind of family values. He doesn't he doesn't say family values in this, but you know, in this book, he's very judgmental about drugs. I mean, 
very judge. I mean, you can be judgmental about drugs if you like, but but if you're telling the Beatles story, it's to excess. I think what he he says about the drugs here, he's I think in a slightly prurient and judgmental way. Uh, his characterization of Brian Epstein's sexuality just feels like like he's sort of he's kind of mocking and pitying and and is slightly disgusted by by Brian and i think that, that those things suggest something that he's not comfortable with the 60s on the other hand and this is where i think it's contradictory john lennon he's constantly describing as the great disrespecter the rebel the person who won't conform and paul is the peacemaker who likes to please everyone and so on so i think there are two different things going on in his head i don't want to say what's going on in his head but it feels like on the one hand he's got some sense that there was perhaps a pure kind of good maybe those first few months of 1967 that at the only point that he seems to be totally happy with the beatles and maybe there's a kind of purity to that revolt that is embodied in john lennon but on the other hand uh he thinks that the 60s all went terribly wrong and produced the awful 70s and everything's been worse since then and and that's odd and in his in his uh, expanded version in the in the 2000s he he really goes off on one in his introduction which is very odd well i think that's interesting because i think i've read that i don't have that version that the paperback version but i probably browsed through it a few times in waterstones maybe but i have read that introductory and i think it was about 2001 that version and i think what's interesting there is without getting too political is by that point the 60s starts to get lionized you know through the mid 90s a a lot more you know that that constant brit poppy thing of comparing oasis to the beatles or steve uh, steve coogan to peter sellers there was or tony blair to jfk even there was always a kind of a, a comparable thing so especially if you know and you had that that sense that the 60s was where everything was great and we won the world cup and uh, you know and uh, all that kind of vanity fair the front cover was was london swings again therefore suggesting that it was great if you remember that liam gallagher and patsy kensit front cover uh less said about that personally but anyway um so he's probably even more angry by the early noughties because suddenly this horrible sixes that he obviously didn't have a huge amount of affection for everyone was was kind of lionising and talking about how great Michael Caine was in Alfie or, or whatever. <laughs> you know, it was just all that kind of stuff. And I remember personally, I was like, you know, uh, 16, 17 and in the, in the early noughties. Yeah, the 60s was just it. Everything was, was great about Britain was, was from the 60s. Uh, I don't think people feel that, that way now as much. But, uh, you know, it's interesting that I think he, he obviously was, was upset with the, that kind of passionate love of the 60s. Yeah, yeah, I, it seems so. Though, though the the seeds of that are in this early '80s version that he he does. I think in a way, it's kind of like this this up and down the mountain structure that I've talked about. He allows it to to expand into the wider culture, so that basically, Britain peaked in whenever it is July 1967 or whatever, whenever Sergeant Pepper was released, and things have just got kind of worse since then uh, and 
in a way, the fallout of the Beatles story is partly to blame for that, I think. So there's, he's a, he's a complicated figure because he has said, hasn't he, somewhere that um, he was hard on Paul McCartney because in a way he thought he was like Paul McCartney or wanted to be Paul McCartney. <laughs> well, interestingly, so I went to, because of course after he wrote this in 81, he then writes a John Lennon biography mm. in about 2008 which uh, was was fine, you know. I I think it was uh, it, it wasn't a, a hatch. I mean, we suffered some pretty awful books about John Lennon through the eighties and, and and the nineties. And but then of course he does this really bizarre thing of writing a biography of Paul McCartney, um, yes. which was now I went to. He did like a launch event in Waterstones in Piccadilly. Is that's where the big Waterstones yeah, is? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to just just get my London map right. So I went <laughs> along, and there was about probably about uh 15 people there and he was interviewed by somebody you know like a, like a, a journalist or whatever um and it, obviously we were all set i think well hang on a minute you don't like Paul mccartney why have you written a book about him and he described mm-hmm. this scene where he met he went backstage i think it was newcastle he went backstage at the 65 tour there in the corner of this dressing room was this ridiculously good-looking, really funny, wonderfully rich, stupidly talented man. And he seemed to take that to heart somewhat. I mean, it was quite open that he'd admitted that. This was, you know, 30 years after the book was published, after the shout was published. Um, and he sort of suggested, maybe without even realising that he was doing it, that it was just pure jealousy that he kind of went for Paul on the back of that, that one meeting. That's kind of extraordinary, isn't it? Because, I mean, he, he's not even saying that Paul particularly snubbed him. He was just really envious that Paul McCartney was, is so talented and good-looking. That's very strange. Because he says, I, I looked as well to see, uh, I, I looked at, compared a couple of quotations from the two editions to see if he'd softened some of his statements. And he does occasionally, but... But one of them, for example, uh, he says that John's music was like his drawing, bereft of obedience and straight lines, but honest and powerful in a way that Paul's never dared to be. And that is, you know, not amended at all. He's still standing by that 20 years later, which is an extraordinary thing to say, I think. But also, uh, you know, I think also is perhaps another sort of historical force in there is the the slightly awful 70s rock critic blokey thing that John Lennon absolutely fits that you know he I mean no he doesn't actually John Lennon doesn't really fit that but by being political by being confrontational by creating noisy albums uh, by creating very personal albums and putting yourself on the line to some extent, it fits with that sort of dreary, macho um, rock critic thing from the 1970s. Whereas Paul, being happily married, writing love songs, being very, very, very successful, you know, selling millions and millions and millions, is easy to characterise as, as being pop pap uh, and and i think he perhaps philip norman is just sort of falling in line a bit with that with that thing as well 
which is interesting because that I think is also there's a kind of history there that has changed. I think we are less likely to criticize Paul's approach to running his family, not running his family, but being a family man and a husband and a father. I think we're now more likely to think that's actually quite an admirable example of, of masculinity from someone who could easily have been drunken rock star. Uh, and so I think, again, there are things that have changed that make Philip, that in a sense, the, the sort of tidal turns mean that this book is a bit caught in them in a way that is is really interesting to look back on after 35 years. Uh, so just to move ourselves perhaps toward the conclusion of our of our conversation, um, I was just want to talk a little bit about where this book kind of sits and stands now, 2021. Um, I put up a tweet uh, of a, a section of this book on the Beatles Books podcast Twitter feed, at Books Beatles, and... Um, of a particularly nasty section from the epilogue where he, he he dismisses Paul's solo work up to that point in one fell swoop. And the reaction that that, that tweet got was considerable. About 80% of it was negative about this book and Philip Norman, although there were a couple, it should be said, of more positive sounds, which I thought was quite quite interesting Two things around that. Where do you think this book kind of sits now in Beatle literature, if, if, if we can say that? And, and why do you think it, it provokes that kind of reaction from people, as you say, 40 years after its publication? Well, to answer that second one first, I think uh, one of the reasons it provokes those reactions, I think, is clearly that it played a part in, in really doing Paul McCartney down for perhaps 15 years in other words doing down someone who is possibly the greatest songwriter that this country's ever produced which is a, a weird thing to do it's so weird to think how we took Paul McCartney for granted for such a long time um I think there's that I do think actually you know it's a book that Prince the legend, isn't it? I mean, even though he he says at one point in it, in fact, it's after the bit where he's talking about, I didn't get to talk to the Beatles, but that's good because actually I've got a bit of distance and I don't get, I don't, I don't get caught up in the mythology. He does get caught up in the mythology. There's all sorts of stuff here that I think now we probably don't think is true. Did the Beatles smoke spliff in the palace? toilets not sure about that did brian epstein buy ten thousand copies of love me do to inflate the chart placement you know there are and and you know was brian epstein we haven't mentioned this killed by a kind of hit by a by a criminal gang um you know those sorts of things that you know it does feel a bit like actually philip norman's not particularly reliable as in terms of his facts and so I think that's one of the reasons why people kind of go, actually, it slightly lets you down. Now that we've had, there's been so much interesting writing and scholarship and evaluation. Where it sits, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, until Mont Lewison finishes his book, it's still got a place as one of the most complete uh, and gripping retellings of that story for all its faults. 
you know, and I think the faults are huge, but I, I want to stress that there are very good things about this book. And so, you know, I think there are interesting things here. And the other thing, of course, is that at some point, is Mark Lewis going to, once he's finished the millions and millions of words, is he going to produce 150,000 word version that would actually replace Philip Norman? Because you or I, of course, think nothing of spending half a year reading a book by Mark Lewison. But, you know, for most people, they're going to want to read a, a hefty paperback. And so it's still got a place, I think. I agree. I completely agree. I mean, if you think of other, bio, you know, plain biographies, really, there's this and there's Hunter's book. There's the Bob Spitz book. I don't know if you're familiar with that. came out about 2006. That's, yeah, uh, totally which again, again, has its faults. Um, but of course, now you've got this thing where, because Mark Lewison's writing this book, people probably won't write just a biography. They're going to want to do a book, because what you're seeing now is you're seeing all these really specific titles mm. come out, like, like, for instance, the uh, Steve Turner's book about the Beatles just in 1966. Yeah, or, uh, um, and in the end, the 1969 book. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely. Or... Pete Doggett's book about the finances and then the breakup and and actually that's great you know those, those things that go into to real detail or or you know like Rob Sheffield's book which is another book I really really love actually there it's a really thoughtful interesting insightful person responding to the Beatles in a kind of cultural interpretive way. And those books are great. I think you're right. I mean, who in their right mind would write a, would write a Beatles biography now when that beer moth is, is rolling towards us? So yes, it's, it's probably, it's the last book standing in, in a certain way, isn't it? And, uh, and it's got a kind of, until Mark finishes his grand project, it's still kind of got something today it does play a part actually i mean the, the other thing i suppose to say is that it's it's of an era where we i guess hunter davis's book being official uh, authorized um means that they weren't going to say really bad things about the beatles even when they clearly did bad things uh this is one of the first books that actually sort of starts to really t say actually they treated these people badly and they were terrible with money and maybe this album wasn't as good as it could be and that sort of thing. And you sort of think, uh, I remember reading this, it must have been Peter Brown's book must have only come out a few months after I read this. And so it actually felt like, oh, wow, people are just saying the worst things about, about the Beatles. Uh, and of course, Peter Brown's book was, dismissed as full of fabrications in a way that we now i think most people think what he said is probably mostly true so you know it, it's also interesting that we that we had we the 80s were a bit of a trough for the beatles reputation it was really kind of the anthology and Britpop that started to bring it back and things like revolution in the head uh, which i think started to kind of go hold on weren't they completely extraordinary rather than yada yada your granddad's music. It's interesting because you mentioned the Pete Brown book there because this is your yeah, 81. Pete Brown was, was 83. Yeah. So you've got the, the two main areas of smut, Beatle related smut come out pretty close together there. 
And then outside of Albert Goldman's book, which of course wasn't a Beagle book, he's, he's just about John, which, you know, you'll probably remember better than me, was, I imagine, even from its publication, was immediately hated by large... Yeah. yeah. So um, it's interesting that there isn't really maybe a huge amount of appetite for that area of the Beatles' career. Uh, I can't... I mean, there are other books that have come out, I suppose, that cover that area. I mean... I mean, even in Craig Brown's book, um, have you read? Have you read that? Yes, actually, I'm reading at the moment, so uh, no spoilers. Okay. I'll try. Okay, I'm... okay. It, 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 <laughs> it's, it all ends. It all ends up well in the end. There's a few sprinkles of not smut, but of, of slight scandal, maybe in there. But the, I think that that's more of Craig Brown's voice and his kind of style talking. But it's interesting. There isn't too many. I mean, obviously, in the anthology, which again, like Huntley's book, is an official. There's there's no hint of anything. I suppose you wouldn't expect it, but both in the films and in the the big book, there's no real sense of anything negative or um, scandal related in there. I can't. Maybe there's just not. Uh, actually, it's interesting to mention Paul's reaction to this book was so strong alongside his reaction to Peter Brown's book. I read somewhere that he, he and Linda like burnt Pete Brown's book in the in the bonfire that in their garden that 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 bonfire wow. night. They really, uh, you know, despised, and you can understand that I think to a certain degree. But I'm, I'm not sure there's really a, a, a market. People don't want to know that anymore. Maybe I, I don't know what you feel. I, I think that, you know, sort of most, I mean, unless there are some terrible secrets still to come out, I mean, I guess Mark Lewison is going to unearth all the the groupy stuff from the tours, but you kind of assume that we, we kind of have a sense of that stuff anyway. Um, Peter Brown has told us about the, the, the heroin stuff with, with John and Yoko in, in the late 60s. So actually, maybe a lot of this stuff has sort of come out or it's trickled out. I mean, funnily enough, there are things that Philip Norman doesn't say. And you realize because a lot of the people were still alive and he didn't, he was worried about being sued. So his characterization of Larry Parnes, for example, is a very rosy picture of a, of a, of a man with a totally wholesome interest in his young male singers. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't mention that Neil Aspinall was in a relationship with Pete Best's mum, does he? Because no. again, these people were uh, still alive at the time. So, so actually, that I think it feels like there's a, there's been a slow reveal. I'm not saying either of these things, by the way, are necessarily particularly dreadful but you know there's a sort of we we've got a lot of the negative sides and people are more interested in trying to evaluate the the qualities of that work absolutely well dan it's been such a a pleasure talking about this book it's uh it's reading it again it brought back a huge amount of slightly conflicting emotions of the of how i feel about it um and i think it's fascinating that it's still a book that looms large as uh, george would say in the, the beatles legend uh, well dan thanks so much for your time I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you thanks joe